My name's Peter, as Mark said, and we're going to be going through this. Look, it's a long passage. We're not going to have the chance to go through all of it and deal with all of it. Um, but we're going to hopefully get some of the main themes as we go through and as we continue to think through John's gospel and its implications for us and our lives today. Look, it might not have escaped your notice that London is one of the uh, most ethnically diverse cities on the planet. Apparently, more languages are spoken in London than in any other city on the earth. So over 300 languages, it's been recorded, are spoken just in the schools of London. I mean, it's just an enormous diversity of language, of races, of people from different backgrounds and ethnicities and nations who come together in this, our city, if you call it your city. And in that context, of course, when you're dealing with people from different opinions, different backgrounds, then there's opportunities for misunderstanding, particularly when it comes to religion. It's interesting that though we're in a more secular age, so we're told all the time, that actually religious discourse, the amount of talking about God and religion in newspapers and in popular media is actually on the up, not on the decline. And so one of the challenges is how do you navigate understanding religion and God and issues of faith in this kind of multicultural context? And you'll know that one of the things you don't do in that situation is make kind of claims to truth and make claims which can be exclusive. In other words, claims which say, I'm right and you're wrong. Now, we're used to those type of claims in general life and they generally don't go down too well. For example, Donald Trump, I suppose he's always an easy quote, isn't he? But he just this last week, after having made derogatory comments about developing world countries, then was being pressed by interviewers time and time again, and you always know with Donald Trump, eventually he can't help but give you an answer or give you a soundbite. And so he said, I'm not a racist, I am the least racist person you will have ever interviewed. And you know, you might want to say to Donald Trump, just saying it doesn't make it so. Of course, sports stars, they're always you know, um, making big claims, sometimes to sell fights, for example, in unboxing. So Chris Eubank once said to promote a fight, I am a living legend. If you look up legend in a dictionary, you will see a picture of me. And one of the commentators who was there turned around and said, of course, his first problem is using a dictionary that has pictures in it. But that's just cruel for boxes, isn't it? Now, when you deal with these big claims, then how do, you, how do you process them? How do you evaluate them? And particularly in religion, when you deal with claims, how do you evaluate those? Do you just say that all you know, religious claims are expressions of opinion? Faith is fundamentally private. It's your opinion. It's not truth. It's just where you particularly stand. And we can all get on with that regard. The problem is John, as we looked at last week, makes such big claims you can't really put it into that bracket. Look down at verse 18, where we kind of left last week. The Apostle John, who spent three years of his life with Jesus Christ, said this, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. He's um, really committing two faux pas in our culture, and his phrase is a bit too hot to handle. First of all, he makes a claim to religious truth. He says, Jesus Christ has made God known. Not has made God an opinion you can believe in, but has made him known. Truth, reality, fact versus fiction. That's a bit of a no-no. Secondly, he makes an exclusive claim. Look, he says, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son has made him known. In other words, no one else has made God known. Uniquely, Jesus Christ reveals God. Now, I don't know how you feel about that, whether you're coming here as a believer or not a believer, as a skeptic or an inquirer or something in between, you know, I, but as you deal with that, you can either dismiss it and say that's just too uncomfortable, a bit too hot to handle in a pluralistic age, or you can evaluate it and you can say, okay, what do I make of that? If it's true, let's look at it. If it's false, it will, you know, then it won't stand up to scrutiny. I mean, after all, that's what you do in your job, isn't it? 
someone makes a big claim, I found the best new interior designer, you don't just say, thanks for your opinion. You kind of say, well, if they're really good, they might be helpful for my architectural practice or something, you go along and look at them. Someone makes an investment claim, this is the best investment decision you could ever make. You're a bit of a fool if you just invest on the basis of their opinion, but equally, if you dismiss it, you might be a fool for missing out. So you evaluate it. Well, what do we do with this? And what John does here with John the Baptist's testimony is he says, John the Baptist will actually help you to evaluate this claim. Now, John the Baptist is a key person because Jesus himself says this about John the Baptist. Amongst those born of woman, there is no one greater. Now, I did a bit of research and I found out that amongst those born of woman is a pretty exhaustive category. And so when he says there is no one greater, he's saying he's the greatest that's ever lived up until the point of Jesus Christ. That is a big claim. And so he now marshals the evidence of John the Baptist's testimony to help us evaluate this claim of verse 18. And it's all about John's testimony. Look at how uh, John the Apostle highlights it, verse 19. Now this was John's testimony. And then we get again, just a bit over the page in verse... Uh, over the page in verse 32, then John gave this testimony. So he wants us to evaluate Jesus Christ by looking at John's testimony. Now initially, as you look down, John the Baptist is not exactly forthcoming with the information. You get this kind of Q&A going on with John the Baptist's testimony, don't you? First of all, look at verse 19. This was John's testimony. The Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, confess freely, I'm not the Messiah. So it's helpful to when someone says what they're not, you'd rather they told you what they are. Verse 21, then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who was taken up to heaven, and they're wondering, has he returned? John says, I am not. Are you the prophet? Again, a prophecy in the Old Testament about Moses, the great prophet, one like Moses returning. John says, I am not. You can hear their exasperation rising. They're like, tell us who you are. And then he gives this slightly strange response, verse 23. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. That seems like a very humble claim, doesn't it? I'm just a voice. And of course, he is in the wilderness. He's in the desert in the northeastern part of Galilee at that time. He ministered in the desert context. People had to go out from the towns to see him. And he just says, I'm just a voice. But then you see that John the Apostle draws our to attention that it is from the prophet of Isaiah he's speaking. Now, I think it's worth cross-referencing this because otherwise we'll miss its importance. So this is from Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah, one of the main prophets in the Old Testament. So just come back to page 725 with me. And look at verse 3 of Isaiah 40, page 725. And here is really a climax point in Isaiah's prophecy, and this is what John is quoting from. Look at verse 3. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John says he's a voice, but by quoting this, he says he is the one who is preparing the way for the Lord. And in the Old Testament, whenever you see capital L-O-R-D, it is the Hebrew word for the name of God. The name of God was considered so holy by Jews, they wouldn't even say it. When they came across that in Hebrew, they would just say Hashem, which is the name. Everyone know this is referring to God himself. And so when you come back to John chapter 1, John the Baptist is saying, I am the one who gets the unique privilege of preparing for God himself, and the one, therefore, who will follow me is God. No one else is God. Very clear. So he is saying that Jesus Christ, when he comes, 
because he's the one who follows John the Baptist, is God himself. That is a huge, huge claim. First thing, then, he's saying is that Jesus Christ is God. Secondly, he's saying that Jesus Christ is God come to be a sacrifice for sin. You get that by this repetition of this phrase, the Lamb of God. So look down with me at verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him, so he said, I'm preparing the way for God, and then the next thing we see is him pointing to Jesus Christ. So here he's designating him as God, and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then look down with me at verse 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Some years ago, I found out that my parents had a pet name for my brother when he was growing up. They called him their little lamb. That's kind of nice, isn't it? I understand that it stopped at age three because he didn't develop quite the way they were hoping, wasn't as cute at age three as he was when he was little. Then I asked them what their pet name for me was, and they said, oh, we called you the monster. I mean, lamb and monster. And my therapist says that I'll work it through over a period of time, but I'm doing all right with that. Now, we tend to hear that phrase, lamb of God, and you might think that's a kind of cute name for Jesus, like a term of endearment. But it has a very specific reference. Lambs in the Old Testament are animals which are used for sacrifice. So some key Old Testament events have the lamb as a sacrifice. Genesis 22, when Abraham is about to offer up Isaac, his son, as a human sacrifice, you know, horrendously, wonderfully, the Lord provides a lamb to be the sacrifice in Isaac's place. It's a really, really famous incident in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 12, when God is calling his people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery and brutal oppression, the only way that the Lord can finally break the yoke of oppression on his people is by judging the Egyptians by taking away their firstborn sons and to provide a sacrifice so that the Jewish firstborn sons don't die, God provides the Passover lamb, a lamb as a sacrifice. And so this picture of a lamb being a sacrifice is huge. And then Isaiah himself picks it up with some very, very famous words in Isaiah 53, verse 7. He says about the Son of God, Jesus Christ, he will be led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In other words, the lamb is a sacrifice. So this is the picture John is building up. Just try to get your head around this. God himself will come in the person of Jesus Christ, but when he comes, he comes as a sacrifice? Why a sacrifice? That's just bizarre. We tend to think that God wants us to bring our religious devotion and sacrifices to him, but John the Baptist's testimony is, no, no, God says, I am the sacrifice. I'm bringing the sacrifice of myself to you. It's the other way around. Why is God coming as a sacrifice? Well, because we got a little hint of it in verses 9 and 10 last week. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. God is presented as light in the Bible. That means moral purity, perfection, love, glory, wonder, everything that's good about the world. And so when the true light, the real source of purity and perfection and beauty in the world comes into the world, you'd think we'd flock. We'd say beauty, truth, perfection, we love those things. The damning verdict of John is that actually because of our own inherent darkness, we draw back. We find it a frightening thing. <coughs> And yet Jesus comes as God himself to be the sacrifice for sin, to deal with the darkness, not to condemn the darkness, but to change it. 
to bring redemption, sacrifice, forgiveness into that situation. So John's testimony is God is coming. He's coming as a sacrifice for sin. And then lastly, on the back of that, he's coming to be king. Look down at verse 32. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him, and I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one, or this is literally the Son of God. In Mark Twain's classic story, The Prince and the Pauper, I don't know if you know the story, but um, young Prince Edward uh, meets a guy who is his spitting image, his doppelganger, but they're from very different backgrounds. Prince Edward is the heir to the throne, soon to be crowned king, but the pauper, a guy called Tom Canty, is a very impoverished child, a child of no privilege at all. And by a quirk in the story, they end up swapping places. So the pauper goes into the royal court, and Prince Edward, for a time, is outside of the, of the palace gates and outside the royal court. The problem is, once he's outside, he can't get back in. And so the whole story is about his adventures and him trying to get back in, in time for his coronation when he's going to be crowned King of England. And of course, you don't want to crown the wrong person King of England. And the key moment in the whole story comes when Prince Edward finally, now dressed in rags because he's had quite some adventures, and he's back into the coronation. He's there, and Tom Canty, the pauper, is about to be crowned king. And he shouts out, stop, he's not the true king. And Tom Canty's relieved because he's been telling everyone that for weeks, but no one's believing him because he looks just like the king. They think the king's just a bit nervous about getting um, crowned. And of course, they all turn around and see this person who looks like the pauper, Prince Edward, and say, how do we know you're the real king? And he gives them a bit of information. He says, send someone from the royal court to a particular place that only he knows and the King, King Henry knows. And there you will find the royal seal. And bring the royal seal back and you will find that I am truly the king. And so the guy goes and he brings back the royal seal. And it proves that even though he doesn't look like the king, he really is the king. When John the Baptist baptizes Jesus and the spirit descends on him like a dove, it is the royal seal proving that though Jesus Christ does not look like king, he is the true king, because God himself is affirming it. And when God gives that kind of affirmation, we should sit up and take notice. He's the king who's come to rule, establish his redeeming, transforming rule over the whole earth. So what is John's testimony? How does he deal with this massive claim of verse 18? He says, Jesus is God himself, come to be a sacrifice for sin, and he's come to be the king and to rule. Lastly then, and briefly, let's look at the disciples' example and see how they respond to this, because we can learn a lot by them. What we then get in verses 35 and following is actually five different disciples who all have kind of slightly mixed and different reactions, but I want us to focus on the commonality. So first of all, we get these two disciples who follow John the Baptist in verse 37. When the two disciples who were following John the Baptist heard him say this, when he said, look, the Lamb of God, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come, he said, and you will see. And so they went with him. Then you get Simon Peter, who hears on the back of one of their testimony about this, and he too, in verse 41, goes and follows and looks at Jesus, goes to see. Then you get this strange thing in verse 43. Philip follows Jesus, just as Jesus calls him. And then Philip 
goes after and speaks to the skeptic, which is Nathaniel. And look at verse 45. This is quite a sentence. Philip found Nathaniel and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In other words, he says, the long-promised king, God himself, has come. Oh, he lives in Nazareth. And by the way, Nazareth is kind of a backwaterer. Now, I can't really say a backwater like anywhere, because if I name that place, you probably come from that place and you'll be mortally offended. So think of the place you don't like, and Nazareth is like that place. And don't say it out loud, because you'll offend someone. And so Nathaniel is skeptical. You've got different groups of people, haven't you? You've got Simon Peter, who's a fisherman, working lad. Nathaniel, a skeptic, doesn't believe it. You've got two disciples who follow John the Baptist. They're the religious ones. And all of them do the same thing. They all go to see Jesus. So notice people from different backgrounds with different starting points and different dispositions. How do they respond to this huge claim about who Jesus is? It couldn't be more simple. They just go and see. They just take a look. They don't dismiss it out of hand. They just go and have a look. I mean, you can get more sophisticated than this, but most of my time working as someone who wants to give people an opportunity to explore the Christian faith, the hardest thing for me is to actually get people to go and see, to have a look. I myself, not from a Christian background, just to be anecdotal for a moment, when I was at university, I was studying philosophy, politics, and economics, and one of the phrases I came across in studying it was in Latin, so it sounds better. It's called ad fontes. It means go back to the sources. And I took that to heart. It meant that when I was told to read, I don't know, a philosopher like Rene Descartes, I wouldn't read about him only. I would read him. I would read his writings. I would read the sources, and then I would read about him. Some Christian friends said to me, you do that with philosophy, why don't you do it with the Bible? I was debating about the Bible, but I never read it. I said, well, I read it as a school. They said, come on now, you're a grown adult. You read things very differently as an adult. Read it properly. Go and see, they were saying. I couldn't deny it, so I did. And it was not what I expected. Oh, we have people with third-hand opinions. I watched a Channel 4 documentary. There was some ropey doctor of the University of No One Knows Where who said this about the Bible, and so therefore I can't believe. What? I mean, that would never cut it in your work, would it? Just go and see. Just give them the time of day. I mean, it'll be good for your soul because it's the most read book the world's ever known, so at least it'll inform you about the world. Just look at it. As an adult, read it. They go and see, and then secondly... They go and follow. Now, we can be more sophisticated about what a disciple, someone who would call themselves a Christian, is, but it never gets really much different to this. A disciple, a Christian, is someone who follows Jesus. And I love that phrase, to follow Jesus, because you know what? It talks about a journey, not a box that you tick. So many Christians, and I'm speaking to the Christians in the room here, almost treat Christianity like it's a box they tick rather than a journey that Jesus takes them on. What I mean by that is they're kind of the I know Christians. You say, you know, did you know that Jesus has died for your sin? They say, yeah, yeah, I know. Then why are you so anxious about your past failures? Why are you so brittle when people raise your faults with you? Because you're not really on the journey. You think it's a box you've ticked. The great thing about a journey is there's always further you can go, always new adventures, always new challenges. Jesus says, come, follow me. And actually, you see this in his interaction with Nathaniel. So he interacts with Nathaniel, verse 47, when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel responds, kind of, do you know me? Do you think you know me, Jesus? 
And then Jesus says this remarkable thing that no one fully understands. He says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, no one knows what happened under the fig tree, but something happened under the fig tree that Nathaniel knows about and Jesus knows about. And so when Jesus puts his finger on that moment, Nathaniel goes, you really do know me. By the way, the commentators waste endless pages trying to conjecture about what happened under the fig tree, but we don't know, so we, don't, we can't say. And Jesus then says, after Nathaniel makes this amazing confession, verse 49, you are the king of Israel, he says, you think that's it? You think that's it? You think you've, you've ticked the box? No, 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 come with me. You're going to see greater things. In other words, come on the journey. You know what he's saying to you and I? Come on the journey. If you're someone who believes in Jesus Christ here, go on the journey. Maybe you've stopped journeying. Maybe you said, I know enough. No, no, journey with him. There's always more to know. And if you're a person here who says, I'm looking in, I want to find out a bit more, just take the first step on the journey. That's how a journey starts. Take the first step, look at the Bible, come back next week, see what you reckon to it. Thanks for listening. I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll hand back to Mark to close up. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thanks for the testimony of John the Baptist. Challenging words, Lord, if they're true, they change everything. If they're false, they have to be investigated and proved for what they are. So, Lord God, pray that wherever we are coming from today, whether we are maybe taking the first step on the journey or whether we've been journeying for a number of years, would we go and see Jesus? That means read the Bible, see what he's really like, read it for ourselves. And would we be prepared to follow him and see the implications of knowing him for our lives today. We ask it for his name's sake. Amen.